Welcome back to Roycast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Kate. Hello. And Gabby. Hey, everyone. We are joined this week for Season 3, Episode 2, by writer and culture critic Fran Hoffner. Hi, Fran. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Just grand. Great to have you in the house. The episode we are here to discuss today is Mass in Time of War. Um, So as we did last time, we're going to dive into a plot summary up top of what happens in this episode. So I'm going to talk for a minute and we will just spoil the entire thing. uh, And uh, then we'll get into what we found interesting about it. So Mass in Time of War. Uh, So in this episode... Kendall meets with his siblings in Rabba's condo and pitches them on joining his cause. After meeting with Sandy, Sandy's daughter, played by Hope Davis, and Stewie, Ken is able to assure his siblings that the takeover bid can be settled, provided Logan is removed. After Shiv and Roman consult privately with Tom and Jerry, the siblings agree that it would be difficult for Logan to survive if they publicly called for his removal. However, no one is willing to take the first step, and the arrival of a box of donuts, seemingly sent as an implicit threat, tips the balance. The siblings depart with the furious Ken hurling insults at their back. Meanwhile, Greg, spooked by a visit from a Waystar legal counsel, seeks his uncle's support, and Ewan takes him to the offices of left-wing attorney Roger Pugh, who seems more interested in the activist potential of Greg's case than his well-being. In Sarajevo, Logan summons Marcia, and with Hugo and Carolina negotiates an expensive deal for her to publicly return to his side, assuring Roman that he trusts him, and in turn receiving Roman's assurance that Shiv is on board, Logan returns to America to publicly reunite with his loyal offspring. He promises to install Shiv in the position of president as Waystar, while she will be shielded from liability by the person of Jerry Kelman. So, uh, I have uh, just one question uh, for Fran right up top. Would you say that uh, HBO's award-winning drama Succession is definitely back? It's absolutely back. It's 100% back. (laughs) (laughs) We've got all the guys in the rooms... They're talking, they're on the phone. It's it's what we all missed and loved. Absolutely. We talked last week about how we've, you know, we had some trepidations about the return of the show, about the COVID shooting, whether we thought there was a step missing. We were a bit anxious about that. But this was, uh, for me, you know, I think I texted everybody right away, you know, our show is back. Our stories are back. Yeah, it definitely feels back to me. And I would also say it's successfully getting away with not seeming like something that was shot during covid totally totally and i mean in in there are there are several ways in this episode for me that i think just like even formally visually some things that felt off about the last episode we talked about the a lot of acting taking place on phones a lot of scenes on you know airport tarmacs that kind of thing um this episode i felt like deliberately almost went back and revised the things that felt a little bit wonky in that episode we had a much more interesting uh scene on a tarmac at the end of this episode where you know logan is sort of showing off his relationship with roman with Marsha for the cameras and then a lot of very intense phone conversations here where i think the stakes and everything just felt heightened i think overall there was just a sense that the emotional stakes of this show had uh, sort of been brought back into the game and a lot of that just comes from having these four siblings together again in a room in a way that they haven't been for a long time couldn't have yeah, said def- it better myself brendan definitely Congrats. feels like 
<laughs> good job, everyone. Have a good night. <laughs> no, signing off. I, yeah, I, I absolutely. The stakes were there in every scene. Every scene mattered. Every scene felt purposeful. Um, I definitely feel like initially I was like, this is what I was hoping for to see in season in the first episode. You know, in regards right. to why did Ken do this? Why did um, you know he betray his dad, et cetera, et cetera? However, you know, um, I feel like. The way they structured this episode, uh, you know, with kind of everyone on their own at the beginning um, and no alliances formed. And then by the end of the episode, you know, everyone is now on their sides of war. It was it was perfect, dramatic setup for an episode. So, you know, I, I, I can't quite complain about uh, episode one missing some of that because I think it w- it fit really well for a super dramatic high stakes up. Sorry, yeah, Gabby. I think I, I think it kind of solidified that there were maybe like 20 to 30 minutes of the first episode that could have been cut <laughs> or condensed in some way. Um, but it's OK. They're back in full form now, yep. firing on all cylinders. And yeah, I definitely felt like this episode um, kind of evoked certain season one scenes and moments, which was fun. Um, you know, when the kids are together, kind of. Uh, bantering and and getting real personal with each other it it definitely feels like um you know back to that that first love um especially I think um the scenes in this episode reminded me linguistically and sort of um scenically a little bit of them in the hospital season one episode two uh shit show at the fuck factory I, I kind of enjoyed that there was um, some parallels in terms of language used. I mean, I love when the show, you know, reuses language. It just helps kind of create this um, this world where, uh, you know, we know that they are so involved with one another that they sort of eventually speak the same way. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, shit show at the fuck factory. I mean, you have, uh, you know, that was, I think, that's the, that's, so we're talking about episode two of the series. So this, that would have been the first episode they shot after, you know, the pilot was initially filmed like almost a year before that. Right. Um, so that's sort of like the second pilot for the show. And this almost feels like the second premiere for this season, right? But there is this sort of sense uh, of this sort of circular nature of this drama, right? That these kids are returning to these situations with sort of Logan's continued presence in their lives being something that is hanging in the balance. They're in a hospital, sort of this area where you're perched between sort of birth and death, right? And now they're in this childhood bedroom where they're, you know, mm-hmm. you know, pulling, they're like, uh, you know, cuddling into these hubby holes. They're on this, there's all these, uh, these trappings of childhood all around them in the sense that they're trying to hang on to the past, even as like the future is sort of like rushing towards them and they're trying to beat it back. Um, even as they, you know, have this sense that something in their lives is going to have to change. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost like the exact same scenario in Shit Show in terms of, uh, like you said, they're finding themselves in the same situation. Ken's trying to sell the kids on why they should join him and support him. Um, there's a lot of jockeying, uh, you know, going on. And, and the kids are going to find themselves in the same recurring situation of like choosing alliances and therefore enemies amongst the family members. And they're going to continue to um, until they break free of like this codependency. 
Um, and that's not going to happen because it would require them to like deal with their ambivalence towards one another and like make actual choices to make a change, make a decision to break free and to change. And we know um, we've long pointed to the family as like, a tr you know, they're trapped. They're trapped by the family's wealth. They're trapped by, um, again, the codependency, much like the mafia. And um, they're not going to break free from it because they're too cowardly and comfortable to walk away. And what was fun, I have really liked about the ambivalence has always been so subtextual. Um, and in this episode, we get a good moment where Ken actually, you know, makes it textual. He's like, do I love dad? Do I hate dad? I don't know. I'll outsource it to my therapist. And right. uh until the characters are willing to choose something different, you know, those are therapy terms, just do something different, whatever. Um, they're going <laughs> to they're gonna keep finding themselves back, doing the same things, uh, falling, you know, for their dad, who they know deep down they can't trust. But trusting dad is safer to them than going forward without dad. The interesting thing about this episode is that, you know, we're, so we keep talking about this sort of centerpiece scene. Um, it's really this longer sequence where all the siblings are united in Rava's condo, but really the heart of it is this conversation that takes place in Ken's daughter Sophie's uh, childhood bedroom uh, with these photos of Sophie hanging out with Billie Eilish and Harry Styles on the wall and a great bit of set dressing. Uh, but it's sort of this idea of like what happens when the Roy kids stop being polite and start getting real. Right. What uh, how how real are they actually being with each other? I'm interested, Fran, in what you thought of this. You know, Ken is making this attempt to sort of cut through the bullshit layer of sort of like legalese and denial. And, you know, what did the kids know and when did they know it? Uh, did you have a sense that the kids were really being honest with each other in this scene? Fran, I'm curious how this how this came off to you, because there's a sense in which, you know, Ken is still sort of just spinning a lot of stuff at them very fast and trying to overwhelm them. I think, well, the first thing I want to say about this scene is that it really reminded me of a scene in In the Loop, which I believe Jesse Armstrong also wrote for. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. In which there is a brief meeting between two people in a child's bedroom at a party. Um, and so I loved seeing that trope again. But to me, I think the ways in which so much of the lived realities of that room go unignored that, you know, they're in a child's bedroom. They're kind of cuddled up. I think Shiv is maybe holding a stuffed animal at some point, but... She not, is, yeah. <laughs> they're not really talking about the extent to which, like, Ken has set up, you know, like, a war room in his ex's apartment. The way in which, like, we really... Ought, we don't know where Ken's kids are. I think there's just a broad mm -hmm. denial of the family nature of where he's camped out that is immediately putting up a boundary and I don't think I mean I definitely don't think Shiv and Roman were being very real with him Connor I mean I'm like maybe Connor is always the most real and is just he's like that um that's what living in New Mexico will do to your brain or something like that um but even <laughs> what Ken libertarianism I felt, does to a motherfucker <laughs> yeah truly but even <laughs> Ken I felt was posturing like I think he he would love to be sat at a dining room table with them, but until he sort of it admits the ways in which, I don't know, despite their relationships to each other, that they're culpable. Because they, they can only think of the culpability in a work way, 
if that makes sense. Right. Um, right. They're so good at compartmentalizing in a way where they're mm-hmm. actually no good at compartmentalizing. But, you know, maybe Ken's therapist is going to get to that sooner or later. <laughs> what did you guys think of um, Ken sort of laying on the table the sins of the company, um, the ways in which the company is sort of shoehorned into this declining American empire. Uh, do you think that that is something he truly believes um, or that's something he's kind of just pulling on to, to sort of, you know, convince the siblings? Um, I imagine a lot of us, or maybe it was just me, were hooting and hollering at this moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the, it's the Ken go on Chapo speech, right? Where he's just, he's throwing all these words at them, right? All this, all this like lefty buzzword language. He's, it's sort of like the lifeboat speech though, right? But he's just right. throwing all this sort of like, yeah, sort of like rose emoji guy language in there too. Right. So I mean, I think it's twofold. I think he's delusional enough to know that he has to buy into a story and sell it and go forward. I mean, you know, and, and if you're going to buy into a story, you know, this is the story you tell. This is because I thought the business pitch wasn't it, it, before he got to the kind of more personal, emotional draw of how much did you guys know? Um, the first, mm-hmm. you know, piece of that was more we're in a declining empire. You know, we're going to leapfrog um tech which i know gabby you you had a lot of fun with with that because it's pretty yeah the Um, way he says um in the next 100 information is going to be more important than water and so we can become the the omni-national uh news hub for everything i mean that just you know i was i was was alarmed that the siblings did not like call him out on that because that was like the most coke brain delusion he's ever thrown out i I also loved that it was like a dig at connor to some degree because if you guys remember from right the water wars yeah the water (laughs) pilot connor first spoke you know connor in the pilot exactly like he was on the you know and now he's talking like connor to a certain degree um but i think yeah he has to justify it in his brain this is a great way to make sense of it um there is a lot of delusion wrapped in um but there's some truth there too you know he's he's not wrong in every way that that waystar is sort of just sort of mirror declining american empire yeah and that's always kind of been you know ken's thing since you know especially since lifeboats just this idea that like you know we need to innovate we need to revolutionize but you know the question becomes how much of that is really about the business how much of it is we need to revolutionize in other words get rid of dad um so, I think you know some of that. Some of those lines get crossed, and they're not mutually exclusive. Um. Right. <laughs> yeah, Fran, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say what's continually so compelling about Ken as a character is that he will oscillate between these moments of delusion mm-hmm. and complete lucidity. So, like this conversation mm-hmm. was like operating on two different levels, where like. You know, I think his vision of mm-hmm. leapfrogging tech, like all of his business strategies, always sound like a guy who's like just had articles synthesized for him his whole life. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that is, you know, entirely transparent and see-through. But the conversation about culpability and their family is, like, some of the most lucid conversation, I think, Mm he... Right. In which he's tried to come to terms with all of their roles in what their family has done. And him sort of turning to Shiv and being like, 
you know, you think you are a good person, you're not a good person, also feels like maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of a meta shot at maybe the Shiv stands who love to be like, well, she's the she's the most moral one, which is not by not by a long shot. But um, okay. right, anyone who still don't, has that, don't get that us started, Fran. Is, like, is this just will... deluded by the by her looks or something because at this point, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. How can you? It's crazy that I just still see this. I'll be called the misogynist again because Shiv is probably one of the worst characters. Uh, yeah, and I mean, he, he does call her out on that. Um, you yeah. know, you think you're a good person and it's a little bit sanctimonious the way he does it. Like, I'm the, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the real you, you're the real me. It's obnoxious in his Kendall style. But yeah, and, then, and Shiv is the most vehement, I think, in that scene where they're, you know, fleshing out what they knew and denying that she knew anything um, because she does like to think of herself as a good person um you know so she's saying you know i was 15 i had no idea and connor's kind of like come on like we knew like we mo and the wolf pack and the study like we knew what they were laughing about and some of that might be true shiv is you know the youngest um so we, we don't really know how much she knew but it, it does seem um like she would be the last to sort of admit that maybe you know she had an inkling of, of something well, that was going well, on well i mean we're also forgetting here that she did know because Tom told her. Right, right. I mean, but you know. And they, they are talking about, you know, so, decades I mean, ago, but yes. No, absolutely. But it's still a delusional point of view for of her course, to yeah. not uh, even sure. acknowledge. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I did know because Tom, I made Tom lay it out on our wedding night, you know. Uh, right. <laughs> so that I can make yeah. a deal with, you know, a, a political deal so that she's full of shit. She's just shit. Yeah, the the idea of the death pit is, uh, that phrase does not resurface in this episode, but we get, uh, for the first time, I think, really a good idea of what the death pit is comprised of, because we do learn some details here, you Mm -hmm. know, the things that uh, Ken and Shiv allude to. She says uh, she didn't know that we threw fucking migrants off boats and covered it up as a matter of secret (laughs) company policy. Ken rattles off a lot of stuff. He says things like foreign workers got crushed like meat in a grinder with zero training in the border barrel and clean out the rats in the hold. And I don't know what that means, but uh, some very dark stuff. The sad dancers getting promised the Hollywood shit, you know, very Weinstein-esque and, and Me Too-esque. Let's remember Shiv, the little conversation that she had with one of the victims last yeah, season. Right. Right. So even if she didn't know as a teenager, exactly, Fran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's maintained a culpability regardless. Absolutely. Probably yeah. for the most culpability of anyone that we know besides Tom. It's possible the others more off screen, but from what we've seen, I mean, <clears throat> she and Tom and kind of Greg um, seem to be the most in the know about it. Well, but this is the interesting thing about this conversation, right, is because Ken makes this like large scale pitch about the political and material, you know, situation that their company contributes to and that, you know, maybe they could improve through better corporate governance. Kind of delusional, but broad strokes correct. Right. And then he makes it more personal. He says, we knew about all this Mm -hmm. stuff that Mm -hmm. happened. We were we were closer to all this stuff. And he's trying to make those stakes really personal for them and say, you have to join me because you have you share some culpability here in this. But there's still this huge gulf between him and his siblings, because the thing that's not being stated, the thing that underlies this whole scene, 
is that Ken is driven to do this because he had this experience that the rest of them did not have. He direct mm-hmm. he, he didn't just witness something terrible. He actually did something terrible. Mm-hmm. He actually did, you know, take a life. And that's the thing that's sort of driving his mania and is driving him, uh, you know, right. mad. And I was thinking about... Um, you know, we were talking about, as we often talk about, the movie Michael Clayton, um, mm. which is, you know, a, a classic that we all love. Um, but there's this uh, there's this review of the movie that I have referred a lot of people to over the years by the critic Dan Salit, um, talking about the sort of premise of the movie and the, uh, the Tom Wilkinson character who sort of uh, has this manic episode and ends up turning against his law firm. And so I'm just going to quote a little bit from this review by Dan Salit. Um, he says... Uh, in, in Michael Clayton, Tony Gilroy confronts the central problem of story construction in this genre. How to make it plausible that characters will rebel against a professional life in which they are deeply ensconced and to which they are inured by decades of familiarity. Gilroy decides that the most plausible explanation for this kind of break is insanity. And the character who actually ruptures his life is in the grip of clinically diagnosed mania. And that's a really interesting uh, way that uh, observation I uh, that I think about a lot, um, because, you know, what does it actually take for a rich person to go against their own material interests? Right. This is one of the questions that I think is at the heart of succession. And, you know, one of the answers that's been posed to it is they have to have a really extreme experience like Ken mm-hmm. does that sort of drives him to this extreme mania. Um, and his siblings just don't have that. So he can make this pitch as eloquently as he thinks he's making it um, or even more eloquently, maybe. Um, but because he's so much closer to this sort of like abyss, this death pit than they are, um, nothing short of that experience is going to get them there. Love Michael Clayton. I'm overdue great for a review, rewatch. Brendan. Yeah, it's 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 probably it's one of the movies I've rewatched the most, and it, it's a terrific review, Fran. Uh, I'm sure we'll send it over. It's great. Yeah, please, well, please. Yeah, do. We'll, we'll link it to this in the description. It feels also like a seasonal yeah. watch in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. I was thinking, who is the Michael Clay? I mean, you know, obviously this is just nonsense, fun stuff. But I was like, well, who is the is Jerry? Jerry's the Michael Clayton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of. Yeah, Michael Clayton would be like, yeah, one of those. Yeah, I mean, obviously she's the lawyer, but these very high paid kind of functionaries in this universe, right? Totally, and that just you know eat the shit and don't tell you know the shitty or. Yeah. You know, they eat the shit yeah. for the king. Yeah, yeah, um, Tom is which, in a way, right? Right, exactly, yeah. I mean, they had that whole speech even um, specifically saying that. Uh, yeah. Last, in, in the first season. But so this question of what does it take for these people to go against their own interests, ultimately, I think one of the things that ends up turning the conversation away from Ken and turning the argument away from Ken is that interlude where uh, Shiv and Roman go off and they have conversations respectively Mm -hmm. with Tom and Jerry and they can't quite see Jerry spells this out explicitly for Roman they can't quite see a way where if they take like yes you could probably take down Logan if you unite with your siblings but you probably wouldn't come out on top at the company after that and if they Mm -hmm. can't see a way towards that that's one of the things where they go hmm well I don't know if we can make this decision then uh, because there's not a clear benefit for them because then it's not just you know I'll make the quote unquote moral decision and feel better about myself I actually have to sacrifice something too Ken has this delusion that he can uh, make this decision without giving anything up um, but the rest of them are sort of think are sort of starting to see that that is a delusion that they will have to give something up if they want to go against their father. Yeah, I think for for Shiv, um, 
you know, the, the not being coming out on top was like more of a driving force for her than, than for her brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to think of, of each of their, you know, respective calculus is here and, and what finally tips the scales because they, they are all kind of in agreement that if they banded together, they could take down dad. So, you know, then they, that- they have to ask then what comes next. And I think for Roman, especially um, Roman has always kind of seemed like the one who is the most fearful of dad dying. Um, even from the first, from the pilot when he says, you know, if dad dies and Ken's like, well, no, it's not if it's when, um, and like the stuff with the sweater from the hospital episode. Um, and then he also says in this episode, yeah, but I think, you know, if we do it, it actually might kill him. Um, you know, even though they tend to use the word, the verb kill, um, in more of a metaphorical way quite frequently throughout the show. But, um, it does seem like that's, that's a concern for Roman, but, um, I don't know what you guys think about their their final decisions and what what brought them there. For Roman, I thought that honestly he has a stronger alliance at this point with Jerry, and he wants her at the top. Um, maybe I'm reading into this a whole lot, I, and maybe it's also because then he's the understudy. Um, but you know, I, I believe that he was being driven more so by uh, because. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about more about Jerry and Roman later on, and maybe it's better saved for their um, this point of convo. But just I, I believe that they have an actual serious alliance, a real one that's not full of delusions. And um, so he's doing his part and kind of making sure that that happens, just like he did when he called his dad and said, you know, uh, in the last episode that Jerry would be okay. You know, I, I think he kind of has her back. Yeah, if he uh, if he takes down Logan and they get taken out of the company, there's no more late nights at the office with Jerry. That's uh, <laughs> that's something he doesn't want to give up. <laughs> so yeah, and then there's this uh, then there's this thing that sort of seems maybe like it's the thing that helps to tip the balance. This sudden arrival of a mysterious box of donuts, which they say is from Logan, but it's never actually I think firmly established that they did come from Logan. Somebody who knew they were all there. Um, the only person I think who does know they're all there is Tom, you know, maybe Stewie, maybe Sandy. Um, but the arrival of this Jerry. box of donuts, that, Jerry, this arrival of this gift that they uh, in, interpret as this sort of implicit threat, this reminder uh, of, uh, of their dad's presence. There was this uh, piece by Emily Vanderwerf in Vox this week where she calls the box of donuts the objective correlative, right? This literary device that uh, brings the sort of the physical presence of Logan into the room and all of a sudden it's like, you know, all of a sudden they start to back down uh, because they, they can't possibly contemplate going against him while there's a physical reminder of him uh, in the room here. But I want to put that question to you, Fran. I mean, like, do you think that there's anything that Ken could have said at that moment that would have tipped the balance or, you know, once they're reminded of their dad, is it basically all over? Um, I was most curious about whether or not he'd be able to sway Roman. And I agree that the Roman Jerry Alliance is basically seemingly unbeatable at this point, because I think she offers him the most protection, but I think a lot about um, the scene from last season in which, Logan strikes Roman and the way that it's Ken who jumps to his defense immediately. And so I feel like there existed a 
small possibility um, that Roman could have come down on the side of Ken. Um, because I think Roman also has a little bit of a self-destructive um, tendency where he doesn't want to kill dad, but he's certainly willing to, like, you know, blow stuff up, burn bridges. Um, and, you know, I think would like to get back at some of the company guys like Frank and Carl. And so I felt like Roman was closest. And I wonder had, you know, Shiv not been there. Um, I really feel like Shiv was the one who sort of took this all, took everything down. Um, but, you know, for narrative television purposes, I'm like, no, he never had a chance also because it's a nine <laughs> episode season. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like the vote of no confidence. Uh, Roman was like, you know, the last one and, and Ken just couldn't quite make it in the room. And I feel like that sort of mirrors this in a way in the sense that Ken sort of... Uh, you know, endeavors to to create these, like, you know, very lofty potential upheavals and, and revolutions within the company and within the family. And, yeah, it does seem like sometimes he gets Robin close, but um, the Logan's presence, you know, particularly in, the, in that boardroom and the vote of no confidence, and then here, you know, via the donuts, um, is something that always sort of looms over all of them. I mean, they're they're terrified of him. I hadn't considered this, but since you mentioned the vote of no confidence, the donuts are like when uh, you know Logan is in the room and the board and the boardroom and refuses to leave. Mm. You know, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. His presence isn't supposed to be there. They're supposed to not be. Um, but you know, they're not supposed to be. Fu- he, they're not supposed to be influenced, but Logan is smart enough to know, and I do think Logan likely, although we don't know, sent them. Um, and, and as a reminder, I'm watching you, and he, and he knows what that does to the kids. I mean, he's yeah. fostered this relationship since they were ch- children, and so he knows how to manipulate them, make them a puppet. Um, you know, um, and I do wonder if maybe... Kendall in terms of restructuring his pitch to the kids and maybe went with self-interest first versus like the business then emotional would have worked I don't think it would have but again Brendan we're talking about how do we get rich people to act against their self-interest I'm not sure an emotional appeal is going to do it yeah and I he mean didn't, he didn't start with that anyway so I don't think it would have changed it, but it would have been interesting to hear if he had gone after Shiv. You want X? This is how we get you to X. Roman, you want Y? This is how we get you to Y. Um, But I don't know. He's also so delusional in his own motivations that he probably couldn't have come to that clearly. He couldn't have even humored Shiv on the, like, well, you know, I would want to be in charge. He was like, you know, no way. Uh, right. People think of you as like a wonk, a snowflake. The markets uh, think of you that way, not me. That also mirrored uh, a really uh, funny exchange in, in Shit Show at the Fuck Factory. You lack killer instinct. You're wet. You're green. You're intellectually insecure. You're not emotionally strong enough. You nope. have addiction Wait, issues. That, that's enough. Shit calls that. out Kendall for, you know, having addiction issues and being... Um, you know, emotionally volatile and wet and green. Well, I don't think that, but, you know, I'm just trying to be dad's voice. Right, so, yeah, exactly. Kendall, Kendall, Kendall can't, he can't even, you know, 
separate himself enough from his own ego to mm-hmm. even try and pretend to be like, well, Shiv, we can get you to the top by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, Fran, right. you were going to say something about Roman. I'm kind of curious because this seemed like a, a, a pretty Roman-heavy episode compared to the last one, at least. So I kind of want to get your yeah. thoughts. Yeah. A question I've thought a lot about is what Roman wants because I don't really perceive mm-hmm. that Roman wants to be in charge at all. And I think he's really just looking for a level of protection at some point because I think he's been left so unprotected at so many points in his life. Um, And I thought the moment in which Ken says to Roman, like, dad would send you to jail um, really got to him also. Um, Like, he does not want to remotely come close to being, you know, the one who risks it all to take it all mm-hmm. down um yeah that that was compelling on on ken's part it reminded me of what brendan said last week of the sort of mobster dynamic where you know jail is sort of like <laughs> the unspoken thing like you can't you know we can fuck around with each other but jail um and you know ken says connor he would have sent you to jail rome would have sent you to jail me yeah shiv i don't know um but that does seem to resonate with them just to, to some degree Yeah, and I mean, we talked about the voice of Logan kind of being in the room. You know, Ken sort of sounds a bit like Logan in this episode. We've talked before Mm -hmm. about how we're being invited to compare, you know, Ken and his father more and more as they're now more entrenched in these opposite oppositional positions. Um, And, you know, the paranoia in that scene where he's telling Lisa, you know, where she says, you know, Logan can't shut this down. And Ken says, oh, yes, he can, you know. Uh, right. And you you need to right. prepare for yeah. all eventualities, and then of course there's that incredible, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. incredible. <laughs> Go to Venezuela. <laughs> the bit at the end where they all sort of turn their backs on him, and he just mm. becomes fully vindictive, hurling all these insults at their back, and you know telling them all these things that uh, you know they fear about themselves. You know, reducing you know uh, Shiv to her womanhood and telling her exactly how much he just thinks of her as a prop in this situation, as a tool right. to be used. Um, and then, of course, the ultimate heel move is uh, shouting at our beloved Jess, uh, the, the most despicable thing he could do in that situation. Yeah, I right. mean, he angered some of the uh, the meme lords with that, man, because Team Jess is, is thriving this season. But yeah, he also... Sh- uh, uh, Mirror, he also mirrors Logan's language and calling Roman a moron. Uh, Connor, you're not wanted. You know, just the, the reminder to Connor that he's, you know, sort of the, the, the first pancake, so to speak. And I thought it was ridiculous how <laughs> Logan called Connor in the car. By the way, I've never <laughs> heard the term. I've never heard the term. Um, we flew back scheduled to say that we flew commercial. I, I died when I heard that. I guess that's what super rich people call it. But he, you know, he tells Connor on the phone, like, you're number one. And it's just like, shut the fuck up, Logan. Like, <laughs> you don't mean that. Um, yeah. It's funny, but I mean, he tells I mean, as we all know, you're my number one boy is the line he used in the finale of the first season to Kendall. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it, it's just to me what's insane. And this gets it what we already spoke of, that they're trapped. They can't get out of this. Um, but like how much so much of this is just keeps happening to them over and over and they fall for it and why didn't they just kill dad i mean he's using you guys um yeah you know but it's because you know they can't break free they they're just they can't 
it's too scary to have a world without dad with to have a world without these you know yeah well i like when ken posed it as is it cowardice or avarice i'm genuinely intrigued um because it's it's kind of both both absolutely big time yeah Well, I mean, he makes the decision easier for them by acting completely insane, uh, obviously. <laughs> you know, the, the world the world without dad is a lot scarier if, you know, you're, if your choice is between your insane dad and your insane brother. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. uh, not really much of a choice there. Inaction, inertia is kind of like the default position. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really like all in this episode, you know, all these conversations, you know, we keep talking about what does it take for these people to go against their own interests and there's all these you know conversations about sort of love as currency and uh there's that great conversation with shiv and tom um where tom really interestingly in the last couple episodes is sort of uh has been a lot more withholding of affection to shiv you know she's just looking for basic sort of affirmation that she can always count on tom for and you know she says you know i love you and he just says okay thanks and doesn't say it back right away and makes her sort of like beg for it right makes her say yes i, I I need, I need you to tell me this. I need affirmation from you. And he has that line about, you know, you can't just take my love and bank it and then decide that you want to invest it later. Um, and uh, when they say it, when they say it to each other, he says, we don't have an unbalanced love portfolio. Um, I, I just, I really love this because it, it feels to me as like, it's, it's fun. It's funny dialogue and it's fun to see him kind of twist the knife and shiv, but it also reads to me like it might be a, a healthier dynamic for their relationship. If Tom knows how to withhold, you know, from time to time as well and make shiv, you know, meet him in the middle a little bit sometimes. Well, I don't know about healthier, but it's certainly, right. um, yeah, it, it certainly sort of levels the playing field a little bit if he knows that, that he has, you know, some leverage to some extent. Um, I root for them to stay together. I like, I'm curious to see what the show does to keep them together versus drive them apart. I mean, I think we're all pretty firm here. They're going to stay together, right? Like that's been our yeah. belief. Yeah. Three of us. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I'm not definitive on on either side. Okay. I, I think it's more than likely. I, I I'd have to think on it a little more to just to commit well, I mean, to that. I have commitment issues myself, just like Shiv. So, um, well, but, you know, it's the the television law of relationships is inertia, right? So, I mean, like we right. just we feel like for te- for television's sake, they're all they're going to continue to be paired together, whether their union is you know legally uh, continues to be valid or not. Um, but I mean, I, I, I feel like these characters, we, we, we've already been talking about how, you know, the inertia is kind of the default for these characters when they feel like they have difficult decisions to make. They'd rather just Mm -hmm. not face them. And so I, I feel like, you know, absent another extreme situation, like the one that forced Shiv to, uh, you know, say whether she wanted to sacrifice Tom to the wolves or not, absent another really intense situation like that, I feel like the pressure is off of them and they'll just continue in this holding pattern. Um, Fran, I, I saw that you maybe wanted to say something about Roman's emotional intelligence, which I, I think is kind of an interesting topic. Um, and just the way that Roman is sort of perceived by the people in his orbit and his world and the way that he actually is. Um, I don't know. if uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah. now that we're sort of two episodes into the season, I feel like we're starting to get deep into, you know, fan cam territory with these characters. And I don't know, like... <laughs> broad strokes uh single sentence analyses are everywhere about them online but i had seen something that referred to um 
Roman is maybe the most compassionate character or maybe the least sociopathic. And I had been rewatching some of the really early episodes in which they're sort of playing him up as like, you know, a little perverse monkey a lot of the time. But I was curious as to whether maybe he does have, I don't know, the greatest sense, the greatest emotional IQ, greatest EQ of at least the four siblings, but maybe of the the general slate of characters. Um, he seems to be like willing to push buttons, sure, but I think he's often so low status that he's pretty compassionate towards towards those around him. We rarely see him act vindictively. Um, yeah. Outside of maybe I, I have his always thought relationships, right? Roman is is maybe more socially intelligent than people give him credit for. Uh, we saw it in the the DC episode last season, the way that he handles that really <laughs> stressful situation of being, you know, kidnapped in a in a foreign country. Um, he doesn't really lose his shit, and I do think there is a tenderness to Roman, and maybe we're seeing it with Jerry. And and granted, this is. Um, you know, we don't really have any examples in this show of like a functional relationship, but it does seem that there is something genuinely tender about his feelings for Jerry, um, that it's more than just transactional. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that he always has been kind of a like little, you know, bit outrageous, but from the very get go, you know, he's always had a self-awareness, um, you know, kind of that we're speaking of, or at least a way to win people over, um, like he was able right. to do with the Valter, um, in, in season one, um, you know, he, he, I'm he also has a re- way- go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm also, I, I just, before I forget, I'm also reminded of Austerlitz and, and, um, mm-hmm. we really focused a lot in that episode on, um, Roman's compassion there and the way that he goes and finds Ken, um, and he's concerned for him in trouble. And I mean, that was like a very, very um, rare moment of sort of genuine sibling concern and love. And right. so, yeah, I think it's easy to peg Roman like as this, you know, online dipshit. Um, but, you know, when you, when you watch more closely, um, there is something there that, that I think he has that maybe his siblings don't. Yeah, not to belabor this, Fran, but the idea that he's the most compassionate is outrageous because he's calling Kendall like a lunatic. He's off his meds, <laughs> off, you know, like he 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 definitely has pieces to him, an emotional IQ, but compassion is not the right word. Mm, um, yeah. In my opinion, like, you know, the, the compassion isn't there. Maybe he's better at being real with with Jerry and his loved one. It seems like the most authentic relationship at this point, which is very bizarre. We weren't expecting this. But, yeah, I wouldn't use compassion. Again, not to, like, ber- berate, belabor the point. Yeah, but and Logan does say in a, in, an, in a scene from last season, you know, people like you, Roman. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I, you know, I think it's they're develop, they're developing that slowly but surely. You know, I think he is more likable than than any of them. Yeah, there are these interesting sort of bones of you can see how the character is sort of written on paper, right? Like, like obviously in the pilot, one of the things that people really latched onto is the whole gambit with you know tormenting the groundskeeper's kid with the baseball game. 
right. um, where which was where you know Roman really seemed like the sort of uh, exhibit A for everything that was sort of challenging and unlikable about the show. And they make all these allusions, and they allude again in this episode to him having these like incel, four chan kind of like edge lord sympathies. They say in this episode that he quote unquote surfs the web, right? But th- this is always like sort of more alluded to than seen, really, right? What we really see Roman doing a lot is throwing up these very flip sort of defense mechanisms, you know, telling people to fuck off all the time and throwing out colorful insults and stuff. But it's all very, it all feels very dismissive and sort of deflective with him. He's constantly sort of deflecting and the thing that really seems to define Roman more than anything is his insecurity. Um, and I really like right. the point about uh, Roman feeling like he needs someone to protect him. And that's where this sort of like mommy issues in the Jerry, Jerry. relationship comes from well, yeah, is because they- she's somebody who can protect him and somebody who does offer that to him in a straightforward way. They all throw out sort of, you know, horrendous insults at each other, but Roman does seem to, you know, be more sensitive, especially, I mean, in this episode when, when Shiv, called him out on his sexual issues i mean he he got upset he came back and pretended he wasn't upset but i mean he had to leave the room um so you know i i think maybe there is something maybe to masturbate right right in his ex-wife's underwear we can't be sure gabby (laughs) i'm just fucking with you but um... no i know yeah but it'll be interesting to see what what goes on with roman i love the way they're developing him i mean just yeah Right, yeah, and he's always the first in these conversations, you know, back in episode two in Shit Show at the Fuck Factory, he says that, you know, Logan's not going to die, he sort of, like, meekly insists that. (laughs) It it reminds me a lot of uh, when Tony is in the hospital in The Sopranos, when AJ is like, Tony Soprano's Mm -hmm. not gonna die, you know, and and, uh, and Roman says something similar in this episode, where he compares their dad to Moby Dick, he says he can take us down with a harpoon in his back. Um, He's always (laughs) the first person to throw this out and say, hey, you know, he's gonna be us eventually he has this real conviction um that the feeling of insecurity and being constantly in a subordinate position is something that is sort of unfixable for him Mm -hmm. and he and he likes (laughs) well and he's well and in some way he's and in some way he's adapted that yeah and that that's that's sort of transformed into his uh, a sort of sexual hang-up uh, that he has but yeah the the Jerry Roman relationship is a big part of this episode and I really liked mm-hmm. um, at the at the very end of this episode it seems to me quite deliberately the way the camera lingered on you know there's the shot of Roman and Jerry cutting a very I would say handsome profile together as a couple I would say on the tarmac um, but then the camera cuts back to a shot of Roman as Logan is in the car telling Shiv that she, that he's going to protect her from liability with a chemical and biological chemical suit named J- named Jerry <laughs> Kelman. So that seems to me to be deliberately setting up uh, a, a future conflict where yep. uh, Logan has this thought that he can always sacrifice Jerry, um, you know, mm-hmm. to save one of them. Uh, and Roman, it seems to me, has a real loyalty there that is going to bring him into conflict uh, with his father. Um, but I really like well, the way that relationship is painted in this episode. You know, Jerry said in the last episode that she's just a very straightforward person. And we do see these people having very direct and honest conversations with each other, it seems to me. More, more, to a, more honest than I think anybody else talks to each other on this show. I just want to hammer back to the structure of like starting this episode starting off no alliances and then by the end we have like three alliances and it's it's just so amazing like as you just pointed it out Brendan you know like the contrast of Jerry and and uh Rome and then 
Shiv with her dad, and then we know Ken and his crew, and it's just, it's so impressive as a, as a, as a dramatic episode. I really loved it. Yeah, Ken uh, walking back into uh, Ken walking back into Lisa's law firm and his uh, his baseball cap. That's actually quite a lonely image, I think. Ken walking mm-hmm. in Ken walking in there. It reminds me of all those great shots of uh, back in season one of him wearing that like enormous pea coat, just sort of like shuffling through the enormous Waystar lobby, <laughs> looking like the world's like like most put upon man. He's got like the world's narrowest shoulders. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and I mean, the title of the episode um, kind of ties into, this, you know, this idea of war and allying up. and Yeah, there's a Ken actually in that, that scene when he goes back to Lisa's um, office, there's a, a line that's not picked up by the closed captioning because mm-hmm. it's, it's so quick and quiet. But you hear him use the term infantry. Um, so just the way that they kind of like... <laughs> Uh, position themselves in, in these militaristic terms and and uh, has always been kind of humorous for us the but this episode you know seems to be a little bit more deliberate about that with the with the title and whatnot right uh mass in the time of war right yeah this composition by haydn that uh was uh composed in 1796 and obviously the title of mass has these religious catholic christian implications and there's all this stuff in the episode obviously we've already talked about the idea of guilt uh and absolution and these kids needing to atone for their sins in some way complicity um and that but i think more more so than that even there's this idea of the messiah complex this idea of ken as this Mm -hmm. sort of christ-like figure the way he sees himself you know uh shiv says you fucked the family or he says maybe i saved the family right he he's he explicitly continues to cast himself in these savior terms but obviously when we think of somebody as having a messiah complex it isn't a good thing it's a delusion uh. yeah shiv calls him plastic jesus which i thought was fitting right yeah right. and even go- going back to the finale of season two and the imagery oh. of him in the pool yeah. and the blood sacrifice i mean there's a lot there in terms of you know, the religious imagery and motifs. Gabby, I was just going to mention him laying in that pool floating as Christ. It was just, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's, it's hitting us over the head with that. Um, well, and yeah, a key, the Messiah complex is not a good thing. And a key part of the delusion is that, you know, obviously the story of uh, the story of Christ is that to save the world, Christ has to die, right? And Ken right. sort of mm-hmm. seems to think that he can uh, be the savior figure skip without making any sacrifices, right? Yeah, he can, can skip that part. He can skip. <laughs> he can skip the sacrifice. It's sort of like you know. And the, at the end of the last season, you could imagine him as Christ saying, you know, take this cup away from me. He doesn't want to have to actually go through the sacrifice. He thinks if he sacrifices Logan in his, his stead, then, yep. you know, then he can continue to stay on top and he can save the world and, you know, be installed as the rightful ruler of the company and <laughs> save it through information superhighways or whatever. Um, but uh, that's but it's but it's clearly uh, not not to be. It's so delusional. This yeah, episode just... is so fun with everyone finally hearing their own, uh, at least what the kids are claiming for their motivations for things versus what, you know, we, the show has pointed to in various uh, conflicting areas, you know, that it may not be exactly, um, you know, what they're saying and, and that they're pretty fucking delusional. We were also talking about how canonically the Roys are Catholic, right, Gabby? Like, mm-hmm. this is this has been seeded in throughout yeah. the show. It hasn't been well, a, a huge part of it, but it's in there. 
it is in there. There's there's two things that are more explicit. Um, in the season one finale, there is a the priest at Shiv's wedding wearing sort of the the Catholic collar, but I learned that actually Anglicans can also wear that specific collar too. But right. the next morning when Ken is delivering the bear hug letter, <laughs> Logan has a line where he says, you know, nice ceremony, too bad it wasn't Catholic. Fucking all those kids hurt the brand. Um, <laughs> which I think implies that Logan was raised Catholic. And then we get confirmation of that in the finale of season two when he's talking to Ken sort of just about the um, you know sexual improprieties of, of people in the company and he call, calls himself you know a good Catholic lad who wouldn't even take his shirt off um, you know and then it's more implicit in the conflict with the Pierces which is you know sort of becomes this Protestant versus Catholic dynamic um, especially in turn Haven you know like the Pierces seem to have had, you know, Mayflower ancestry, while Logan Roy was kind of born a, a Scottish peasant. Um, so they are Catholic, and I, I just wanted to quickly comment also on the name of the episode. So um, it's pronounced Hayden, Brendan, Joseph Hayden. I believe so. Yeah, so he was the court composer. Yeah, thank you. Um, so he was the court composer for the Prince of Austria in the late 18th century, and he wrote uh, several Roman Catholic masses. Um, for the prince and, and mass, uh, for those of you who don't know, is sort of the name of the Eucharistic ceremony for Catholics. It's just basically what you call going to church on Sunday. Um, and in this musical context, a mass setting is just um, a Catholic mass in musical form. Um, so it accompanies you know, prayers of the Catholic mass and, and mass in the time of war, Misa and Tempore Belli, uh, was written in 1796, a few years after the death of Marie Antoinette. Um, when French revolutionaries were sort of encroaching on the rest of Europe and, and soon Austria. Um, and I did listen to the the symphony, and it was very nice. I can't pretend to glean um, themes from listening to music, but what I did read about it was that this particular mass is one of, you know, supplication or, or um, sort of humble pleading throughout. Um, it's, in essence, a call for peace in the time of war. And um, the Agnes Day. In, in this piece is quite noticeable. So the Agnes Day um, comes towards the end of a mass and it's the prayer that says, uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. Um, and, and in the mass in the time of war, this part um, of the symphony is like very epic and foreboding sounding, but then ends on an upbeat note, which I read perhaps um, reflected a hope um, at the time that peace could be achieved, but it obviously was not. And by some accounts, it's believed that as Haydn was dying several years, several years later, um, Napoleon's cannons could be heard outside of his window, which, you know, is a little dramatic, but I think right. the parallels to this episode are, are pretty clear um, right. that, you know, right. Is this conflict, you know, is there hope? Um, probably well, the not. The show continually returns to these... Uh, Napoleonic themes, right? And my hope is that we're going to have somebody on the show very soon who can speak with some more expertise about the historical references mm -hmm. that are seated in throughout the show. But there's, but yeah, I, I love that this is another Napoleonic reference, obviously something that Connor's very fond of. Connor also perks up when Ken makes a reference to 323 BC <laughs> in this episode, the year of the, uh, the death of, he the year does. of the death of Alexander the Great, right? And the partition of Babylon, where you divvied up these territories that were conquered by Alexander, this idea that, you know, we've uh, the great conqueror is dead, and we're going to split up the rest of the world between us. Uh, but the the references to history on the show always seem to me to be 
you know, not necessarily super specific, um, but about these sort of hinge points in history, right? Like the death of Alexander, the emergence of Napoleon, um, you know, and what uh, what sort of times and what circumstances make these figures that end up making great historical change. And there's this interesting implication throughout all these references that are seated in, you know, could the Roy kids, could Kendall end up being somebody who brings about great historical change, even if it is for sort of ridiculous reasons, for deluded reasons, for entirely... Uh, the wrong reasons, um, could he end up being this sort of hinge figure that he's starting to sort of see himself as? Um, that's something right. that's something that's been on my mind a lot, and it was it was really interesting to me to see that that's that sort of emerged through the dialogue in this episode as Ken starts to starts to kind of cast himself in these historical and messianic terms. So I think this is something yeah. that's increasingly and on the show's the, mind. The idea of ancest ancestral sin and intergenerational sin is sort of starting to become more clear you know isaac was sacrificed by abraham and that was sort of a, a prefigurement to the sacrifice of jesus and so who's going to die for the sins of this family mm. um it's not even just logan's sins you know it's it probably goes back to uncle noah's sins we know that logan was brutalized at some point in his life by his caregivers so this sort of idea of ancestral sin being intergenerational it's as as intergenerational as their trauma uh, do we want to talk about uh, based Uncle Ewan? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, speaking, I mean, speaking of doing things, you know, for questionable reasons or, um, you know, I, I thought I thought it was really interesting how the show kind of paralleled, um, you know, uh, Kendall trying to make this quote unquote righteous choice for the betterment of the company, and then Greg you know, then meets with Uncle Ewan and um, tries to sell Ewan on it that essentially you and Kendall want to do the same thing, right? At, at its basic, you want to make Waystar, you know, good. Um, and, you know, it, it, ha it had me thinking about how much of, like, history and major moments are actually caused by um, interpersonal drama and petty grievances and vengeance and I know that's a pretty basic thing to think about but it's exciting to me that the show kind of got me there um and and yeah so you know Ewan wants to take the company down um for various reasons I think the show's kind of implied they're not entirely pure um just as you know Gabby was talking about like the past that we don't know about and I wouldn't be surprised if there's something that Ewan's trying to absolve himself from as well um similar to Kendall and um yeah he is he is based Ewan what's interesting to me about the Ewan character is we've talked about how um, the first time we saw you, and it's all the way back in episode five, I went to market, which is the Thanksgiving episode. And that's a really interesting episode to me because it's the episode that feels the most sort of like unfinished and sort of in progress where you can sort of see the show evolving in real time. That's also the last time that we saw Roman's uh, ex-wife slash ex-girlfriend Grace never officially established in the canon um, where she was sort of uh, written out of the show there. Um, and Ewan sort of arrives on the scene as this real, this real bundle of contradictions, you know, the cranky... Uh, brother from Canada who was a Vietnam uh, veteran and anti-war, but also giving Logan shit for not serving his country, you know, 
has a bunch of shares in the company, but also seems sort of anti-corporate somehow. Just this this real bundle of contradictions, and it seems that, um, you know, we've read some interviews recently with uh, the actor James Cromwell, who we've alluded to many times, uh, is very involved in real-life left-wing activism, and how he insisted that UNB sort of revise to include uh, to uh, include that perspective and to be more of an actual uh, left-winger on the show. Uh, but I'm interested. Yeah, I'm interested what you think, Fran. I mean, uh, how how actually based, as we say, is 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 you in, and how much how much does this seem to be sort of driven by uh, resentment? Ewan's a tough character for me to read because um, I'm usually better about this with a lot of other popular media, but it's hard for me to divorce him from what I know about James Cromwell's politics. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's and intentional knowing- too, right? I mean, and knowing the way in which that's informed sort of his inclusion in the show, um, mm-hmm. I think that show, that character has been given so so much gray area um, mm-hmm. to 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 almost like move like water um, through these situations, and that he's been able to kind of just go be up in Canada. In from what I recall from. Um, the Thanksgiving episode in a pretty moderately sized house, not in some like compound like Connor. Um, So the way in which he's been allowed to absolve himself on his own terms makes me deeply suspicious of him. I don't know if it's, Mm -hmm. if it's like a Ken parallel or if he has something to atone for, but I think he's definitely paid a price um, in some way or another. And it may be a price unrelated to waste or Royco. He comes off as a miser for sure throughout the show, you know, like when he <laughs> takes Greg out to dinner um, and, and forces him to finish his food because the waste in the city is obscene. Um, and yeah, now we get into sort of the um, the area of his estate planning. So um, what did you guys make of, of that scene where he brings Greg in? Uh, oh, where we meet uh, uh, Peter Riegert as, uh, what is it, Roger Pugh? Roger Pugh, man. Uh, <laughs> he likes his red eyes, um, and he, he doesn't like capitalism, I take it. <laughs> doesn't seem like it. Uh, what, what is the Priority red Priority one. What is, what is the red eye? That was, a, that was something he was drinking? Yeah, that's when you get a, like, it's, it's a cup of coffee with a shot of espresso, but I think he had two shots, so it was like a double red eye. I don't know. Good little, you know, character details to the lefty lawyer. Who's gonna take on Roy St- uh, Waystar well, and well, expose the rot? Expose the contradictions <laughs> of capitalism, right? Yeah, Fran, we were ta- we were talking about this before the show. My question is like, what do people? There was uh, it was funny because I've spent the I spent the last like uh, day now laughing about the uh, Frank Vernon fan cam that I saw online. Oh my god, it's um, so good! I was but, laughing so hard at that this morning. Yeah, the the zoomer the zoomers are making fan cams of Frank Vernon while all the uh, wise millennials are memeing Peter Riegert. Um, in his first appearance on this show, <laughs> but my question was, what what do people know Peter Riegert from? Is it is it just like The Sopranos, a Zellman that people are fond of him from? Is it like those run of movies like Local Hero and Crossing Delancey that has inspired this affection? Because yeah, there was this there was this real thing where it's like there's all these great casting coups on the show, but like my my feed really lit up where it was like, oh my god, Peter Riegert's on the show. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, there was this like perfect storm this past January and February of um, I'm forgetting the name of the local hero director. Um, uh, Bill Forsyth. Bill 
Yes, there were the Bill Forsyth films on Criterion. And then, this might not be in the right order, but then, like, Joan Micklin Silver died. And I feel like everyone and their mom was rewatching The Sopranos. And all of these things were sort of true of mm. me. And there was this, like, six-week period where no matter what I watched, there he was. Um, <laughs> and he's so, he's so, so, so great um, in all of those, you know, in Crossing Delancey, in Local Hero in The Sopranos, doing very different things in each. And I think at some point, subconsciously, I maybe knew that he was in this season of Succession. Um, but I certainly didn't know he was going to look like a like a Santa Claus. Um, and Did that throw you? <laughs> well, my roommate and I screamed. <laughs> we It really Best was... Moments. Yeah, it really was like a like a touchdown, you know. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So everybody just got uh, everybody just got regret pilled at the same time this year. It seems. Yeah, something something like that, and I think you know one of the strengths of this episode in general is like, as you were saying, like seeing all these characters in a room together. But Succession is so good at bringing in, especially like, not only like great character actors, but also great like theater actors. I don't think like mm-hmm. Regert is a theater actor, but like. this show just has amazing actors and so when they bring in someone who doesn't have like a certain amount of i don't know like mainstream name recognizability but like you know the real heads are gonna know this is a guy who turns in a good performance (laughs) it's something it's something to root for i'm also learning in real time that he he and i share a birthday Um, oh wow exciting yeah this is my new guy yeah (laughs) You, we've met your match. Um, yeah, I was saying he's just that guy who's in everything. He was in The Good Wife, with which both with all which Brendan, Gabby, and I love. Um, yeah, we also love um, Show Me a Hero, and he's yeah. in that, and yeah, he's also yeah. rocking, great in that, yeah. rocking the same beard in Show Me a Hero. Yeah, um, uh, playing playing a judge on The Good Wife is how you know you made it in the Character Actor Hall of Fame. <laughs> that was just like that's absolutely. just that's just that's just like a jewel in the crown of anybody Lin- who's Linda ever been referred Edmund. to as that, that guy. It's so it's a lot of fun, Fran. Oh, I was just saying, it's a lot like, of fun. Yeah. Well, Fran, it's uh, it's that's... Chicago TV canon. Oh, I know my my parents are huge Good Wife fans, and like there would be a period of time where if I would come home, they would inevitably inevitably be watching it i've probably seen like 10 (laughs) episodes out of order and always loved it but i really need to like Mm -hmm. you know there are a few succession alums too in the in in well not alums i guess we're still in succession (laughs) um but there are you know jeremy strong is in it and dagmara dominchek and i'm sure other ones that i'm that i'm missing um but it's yeah it's it's a lot of fun highly recommend I didn't want to. I didn't want to move on from the Greg and Ewan stuff without mentioning the terrific scene. And I didn't look yes. up the name of the actor, but the terrific scene where uh, Greg is consulting with a friend of his who is in the her first semester of law school uh, when he. <laughs> When he gets a visit at his apartment from a somebody, somebody purporting to be, we don't actually know that this is this guy is who he says he is, but purporting to be a Waystar attorney named Oliver Noonan, uh, looking to secure himself as Greg's lawyer. Um, and the the way that guy plays that scene is just like very ingratiating and just like Greg, you silly goose, you know I'm your lawyer, don't you know? Keep up, um, Greg. It's very very like sitcommy, very <laughs> peep show energy. I just thought that was a great scene. That guy played it, was it so great well. energy. There was something like eerie about it and hilarious at the same time like i at that moment i was like all right we're in a really good rhythm here like this is funny stuff 
Do you um, want me to text my professor? Like I nearly lost it. <laughs> and I normally don't fall. I, not don't fall, but I'm not usually a huge like Greg moment person. But I, it, it was just, every scene was great and no, meaningful. No, no high, high, high quality Greg material in this episode. Yeah, high quality. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's let's go to Logan, Logan and then maybe maybe or Stewie Sandy. I don't know. Let's go. Let's go to Logan. Yeah, because we were. Yeah, so we we already mentioned earlier that. Um, sort of transactional relationships and relationships as currency are a big part of this episode. And there's probably no better demonstration of that uh, than the return of Marsha. We've been eagerly awaiting the return of uh, Hiamabas on this show. And she's back, and uh, Logan sort of refuses, quite pointedly refuses to apologize to her for uh, mm-hmm. her humiliation, as she says, uh, when the relationship with Rhea seemed to take on this ambiguous romantic sexual tone that was never quite uh, made clear to us, the audience. Uh, but Marsha certainly felt like she was being boxed out uh, and ended the season uh, seemingly um, estranged from Logan. Uh, but he, he, uh, he arranges for her to come to the hotel in Sarajevo and she negotiates with her lawyer and with Hugo and Carolina to return to Logan's side publicly so that he can again be allied with an- publicly with another woman. Uh, but uh, at, a, at, a, at a very high cost, it seems. Um, so I love that scene of Hugo and Carolina uh, on the phone having to negotiate this sort of non, <laughs> this anti-divorce settlement. It's like, uh, Carolina, you want to take this? She's like, no, go, go ahead, Hugo. And he, <laughs> this smile. Because Marsha, I mean, she comes in and, and she's angry. I mean, she, she doesn't, uh, you know, she, she only somewhat alludes to Logan that, that she's, that she's, you know, been humiliated by the Rhea situation, but she sort of goes, um, and, you know, to the next step when she's talking with Hugo, Carolina, and with her lawyer by her side, and, and she calls Rhea a whore and says, it's not my fault if she couldn't finish him. I was like, whoo, you know, like Marsha came in angry, and she came in um, looking to secure a deal, basically returning to the idea of um, getting what she wanted from the trust, which is, you know, circles all the way back to the pilot, um, securing uh, job stability for Amir, who we know from season one, her son, and then also for her daughter. We, we learned that Marsha has a daughter as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it was great to have her back, and I thought it was hilarious that the lawyer, the way she presented it, you know, well, these numbers are going to seem astronomically high at first, but when you consider the idea of an acrimonious <laughs> divorce um, amid, you know, a contested shareholder vote, it's actually quite reasonable. Um, I really liked the way that um yeah she she read those lines so marsha also was quick to suggest uh to logan that um there could possibly be some fallout for ken uh if they were to make certain things public right um that they know about uh and you know marsha's quick i mean obviously she's incredibly yeah. sharp smart and 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 she knows the what buttons to push and what to suggest and what to do and how to win and um which is why you know they're gonna pay up but um well this is a really it's really exciting to me to see Marsha back because you know in season two we didn't see a lot of this because she was very you know sort of directly aligned with Logan and she got kind of sidelined by Rhea so she didn't play as active a role um and in the drama as she did in season one but They've kept things very open with Marsha. We still don't know a lot about her backstory. There's a lot that's sort of implied to be there that we don't know about. 
and the sense that we got in season one that she really has no patience for Logan's kids and that she can be a very, very dangerous and ruthless enemy if you were to antagonize her. Yeah, really surfaces in a second. You're reminded of that when she nods to Logan and says, you know, there's things you could say about Ken that would stop Mm -hmm. him. Um, So I'm very excited to see her emerging again as an active player in this drama because there's a lot of potential with that character and she's very, very frightening uh, as a a figure uh, when she needs to be. Yeah, and she definitely has contempt for the kids. I mean, when she walked in and and meets Logan and she's like, you're fucking kids. And he's like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It it also, though, it it was an eerie moment. I had kind of forgotten that they could drop all the, you know, this bomb. uh, Yeah. People get burned when you drop a bomb and uh, that's going to happen again. So, um, Ken Hive or whatever, I, I, you know, I know we're not really in that thing in in that no in hives. that world but we're not into hives but some can hive people like myself that i'm not in um you know we I, it's, it's a little nerve-wracking of what's to come yeah and uh logan finally you know gets out of the balkans um you know he's, <laughs> we didn't get to see any of the balkans I'm, I'm starting to think they didn't actually go i'm starting to think that hotel wasn't even in the balkans <laughs> <laughs> the hotel Omni, the five star. I'm starting. I'm starting. I'm starting to think they did not actually fly uh, to Sarajevo just to film in a hotel there. Uh, I really, I, I really, uh, but I really loved the shot. Uh, there's a there's a great scene. We get a lot of re- we get some really good Brian Cox acting in this episode after a sense that he was a little bit held back uh, in the premiere. Um, there's really good scenes of uh, Cox sort of losing control and just feeling really at his wits end. But uh, one of those scenes where he's sort of shouting at Hugo and Frank and Tom uh, seems to be set off by him picking at this very depressing hotel salad that he's eating. Almost oh like God. this is the yeah. thing that's, that, that sets him off. And he's like, get me out of here. <laughs> it's not a, it's yeah. not a Caesar salad. There's like little chunks of ham in it. It's a very depressing, dry looking thing. It's a very it's depressing looking salad. No, it was like, yeah, it was like the, the cubed cheese, the refrigerated cheese from Connor's scheduled flight. Um, oh, so you're all elitist. I, I see what's happening here. <laughs> Sorry, the I've, I've been at hotels with nicer room service. I'll say that. Your five star taste, friends. <laughs> there, yeah, and and you know, I think um, Team Logan is pretty happy to be getting out. There's like a very uh, Carl and 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 Frank don't have uh, too much going on in this episode, but there's a very funny like pan to. Um, <laughs> to Peter Friedman's face where he just you can kind of like see that he's just like his life is flashing before his eyes like how the fuck did I get here yeah it's um, gotta be tense there's no magazines to read in that room I mean that's just a very tense situation all you can do is like yeah kind of pretend to be working on your phone you just I have guess. to sit there exactly busy work you know yeah and the contrast and- with that final scene at, at the tarmac when they're meeting everybody and it just you know there's sort of this this freedom um you know it's it's illusory freedom but freedom nevertheless yeah, in the sense that the characters are sort of doing battle on this field of publicity again, as uh, Logan obviously makes a point of being photographed with Roman and being reunited publicly with his kids. Mm. And he wants Shiv to come mm-hmm. out of the car uh, to be photographed, uh, giving him a hug 
but but she doesn't do it perhaps wisely um now being more cognizant of what her leverage is in this situation increasingly it's limited to her image and her status but i thought that was also really interesting when we're introduced in this episode to uh hope davis as sandy sandy with an i Sandy Furness, um, uh, the daughter of Larry Pine, Sandy Furness. This is going to be really annoying to talk about for the rest of the season. I'm already realizing we're going to have to come up with some, some kind of shorty for this. But, uh, but, Hope, Sandy. but Hope Davis, anyway, shall we say, she's she meets with Stewie and with Ken uh, at, at, in the middle of the night uh, when uh, Ken makes this deal. Uh, or makes this offer that you know can we can we uh, avoid a contested shareholder vote uh, if we eliminate my dad uh, at, before the shareholder meeting? Uh, but I really like uh, the introduction of this character of uh, Sandy of Larry Pine acting through his daughter um, because it sort of shows how much more organized that camp is than Logan's is, right? Because you can imagine that he's made a similar calculation since so much of this now revolves around you know, scandals of a sexual nature and abuse of women that it probably doesn't do to have Sandy himself, who's been implied to have a rather unseemly reputation uh, with women uh, as the, oh, yeah. as the, as the face of this operation. And it probably behooves him if he can swing it uh, to also work through a woman uh, and to take advantage of that. And so there's this continued sense, you know, we've talked before about Stewie allowing himself to be sort of hollowed out and used as a vessel before. And there's this sense that, you know, Sandy is sort of doing the same with his with his daughter now, is, is using her as a vessel for his wishes. Uh, but we don't have much of a sense of this character yet, and we'll see if she's meaningfully different from her father in any way. Uh, I was also kind of curious how everybody read the symbolism of the Trojan horse that Stewie sends to rob his condo. I th that was that was very cryptic to me. I was like, what What does that actually mean? Um, yeah, was I was with Ken. He's like, who's the Trojan horse here? I, I don't know, but I loved it. It was theatrical. It, was, it yeah. was a big moment, and it was a lot of fun. Um, what about you, Fran? Did I think it sort of straddles a line of like there to fuck with Ken, but I also don't know that mm -hmm. Stewie is bright enough to understand that myth. <laughs> I don't yeah, think exactly. Stewie is that smart. No, I think he's supposed to be just kind of like, you know, hedge fund bro, mm -hmm. um, you know, private equity guy. Like, you know, he, he understands that world, but, um, you know, I don't think he's necessarily particularly well read or anything like that. Yeah, so I think this is a grandiose mixed metaphor. It is another great instance of this show, and the like. We've talked a lot in this episode already about the very theatrical elements of Succession and how sturdy it is on the level of just sort of like building a scene. And we even talked about the idea of the objective correlative. But even just uh, you know uh, to liven up a scene, just throwing an interesting or kind of confounding object into a scene can sort of change its meaning because then it becomes very loaded when Shiv steps out of the elevator and is standing next to a Trojan horse mm -hmm. as she approaches Ken. <laughs> it's like it almost doesn't matter why Stewie sent it because it gets you that image uh, which is also sort of ambiguous and mixed with meaning yeah it was fun to have Arian Moaid back um, as always you know he's an OG succession and um, yeah I mean Ken's pitch to them was very predictable I don't know if you guys read anything into it about how they you know took it but 
Oh yeah, I love the bit where he says, uh, you know, when when my team offers up a review, we mean it, you know, as opposed to Logan. Right. It's like, well, whatever, man. Yeah, sure. There's no trust in this room, or there's no trust in this car. So I don't know. I don't know what you think you have to play with. Well, there. also right. when San- Sandy with an eye when she says, you know, this is about business fundamentals, and Ken's like, you know, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> like it's impossible for him to pos- to believe that there, you know, there are not other motives involved. Well, and th- I mean, to be fair, the show kind of shows us that there aren't, like, at least, I guess, maybe right. only in the Roy family, but there are no direct motives that, that are pure. I mean, that's kind of something, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think is going to happen with the, the Sandy Stewie stuff? I mean, it's kind of just been, you know, hanging over the show for now a season and a half almost. Well, I don't know. I'm struggling to remember now what happened with, uh, obviously, the the big sort of, like, real-life storyline that this continues to pull from is the Disney um, uh, the Disney War right, saga. Yeah, and I'm struggling to remember what even happened with that. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've sort of given up trying to predict what happens in the sort of minutia uh, mm-hmm. of, the, uh, of the business dealings here because, I mean, that's just... It's less significant, ultimately, than what's going on with the characters, but I just, yeah, I just don't know. I yoga, always, yoga babble. Yeah, I always thought it would be yeah. funny if they end up losing the company. Um, and if if they all end up losing and somebody else emerges, maybe it'll be Adrian Brody who ends up on top at the end. We'll see. Um, we still haven't met his character. All the fans are saying it's going to be Greg, so yes, you know. <laughs> that would be yeah. That would be that would be like Brand like New York Post. That's like uh, Brand Stark ending up on the Iron Throne, right? Is is Greg winning um, and becoming CEO? It's like sure, yeah, that could happen. I don't know if that would have any significance literally at all to the show. I saw I saw something that was like, well, Ewan's gonna you know bequeath his shares and board seat to to Greg, and therefore Greg will come out on top and like that's his plan mm. with his estate planning yeah but again it's just like yeah i those... think Go over you dead body you know right <laughs> that's my take i just rewatched the i went to market thanksgiving episode to kind of get some clarity He's so on sanctimonious Ewan, yeah and that's not happening i mean he tries to sell him on getting rid of the board so i thought you might just want to chill out now and relax and retire and Ewan's not having any of it. That's that's not. He doesn't really seem to have much respect or regard for anyone. Um, you know, he's preoccupied with climate change, which is understandable. But um, you know, he's cold. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's a san- it's a sanctimonious mission, which again kind of makes me think like, or his mission, even if it's good, like. I mean, the the result end result could be good. So it doesn't really matter if you know these people don't have pure motives i don't know you know does it yeah we'll see historical picture i mean what he actually yeah. what uh what pew actually says in that scene at the end is that they want to poke around in the hood that underneath yes. the hood at waystar they don't actually say they want to dismantle it or dismantle capitalism mm-hmm. you know so we could well just be looking at you know they'd like to you know make some headlines and use greg's case to uh sort of embarrass the company rather uh but there's no real sense that they actually want to create meaningful change necessarily we could just be looking at uh an instance of where ewan just wants to use this to embarrass logan a bit right and there's exactly which is you know all the motivations here are always so cloaked in delusion and cloaked in cope and cloaked in so you know, so we're you know we're, we're never quite sure, and that's why the show for is so fun. And for me, why this episode in particular, I really loved. If I haven't said that like three times already, but it is is because it pokes with a lot of these different kind of 
motivations, what's real, what isn't real, you know, um, it, it deals with a lot of the meat of the of what the show is. And mm-hmm. I, Succession is back. <laughs> it is back. I saw uh, this episode is mid take, and I'm not having that. I'll just I'll just say that. No, that's a that's a heresy. We're not going to entertain that. No, this is. No. That was just it. That was, <laughs> I'm not going further. That was the end. Don't worry, Brendan. No, we're no, we're very excited. We feel the old magic is back. I think that's a that's a good note for us to sort of start to wrap things up on. I do want to go around and give everybody a chance to just say, uh, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about—a stray line or a scene or an image that they liked from the episode. Kate, anything we left out that okay. you have in your notes? Yeah. So I really love that Saddam Hussein is. Um, uh, this is how the episode starts. That's the picture, the image that, uh, you know, um, Shiv has on the phone um, with her dad. And and that's at the beginning. And at the end, who do we see her allied up with and next to? Oh, the man who she thinks is Saddam Hussein. So that's, that's going to work out just great for you, sweetie. Great uh, symbolism there, bitch. Good luck. Jeez. <laughs> No, I'm 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 going a little goofy here, but right. no, I mean it, it. It was a it's it was funny. All right, so that's been misogyny corner with Kate, uh, Gabby. What do you <laughs> what do right. you have for us? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna punt. You're gonna punt. Okay. Um, I uh, I really liked uh, the line early in the episode. Again, we had some solid Greg material in this episode. I liked when mm-hmm. Greg said that uh, he's kind of too young to be in Congress so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was yeah that that was a that was a good one for me uh, yeah enjoyed enjoyed the Greg shtick in this episode I enjoy when he's uh, when he's under a lot of pressure um, Fran uh, last last thoughts from you oh I'll just echo my question from before wondering where Ken's kids actually are <laughs> no but seriously yeah, where where are the kids where did they go it. where um, where are those kids <laughs> I think it's supposed to be. Um, like late summer, so I thought maybe they're at camp, camp. or something. Yeah, um, me too. But I, I, I saw in a preview that they are in a future episode, so they're they're coming back. But yeah, it's, it's weird hope because it's hope like they're it's, well. it's, it's like the middle of the night and <laughs> like they're uh, they're on you know, tour. They're in her room. They're on tour <laughs> with Post Malone. I know this is the ending. I did think it was funny that he used them as an excuse while he's supposedly being so right. emotionally honest with his siblings and be right. having a real talk, no bullshit. Oh, I got to go hug my kids real quick. Fuck off. You're talking to Sandy and Stewie. You know, are you being real or are you just fucking trying to pretend to be real? Oh, and we know the answer. Oh, my God. We didn't. We didn't. We Oh, we forgot to talk about. I said my earlier line. I, I uh, we forgot to talk about Roman doing impressions of both Ken and Shiv in this right. episode. <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic i mean it's always it's always funny with the i mean the jeremy strong impression is so easy you know it's it's so easy to do um but yeah he's like oh he remembered his kid's name that struck me as like almost too, that, that that could have been a really good ad lib but then when he's doing the impression of shiv like doing as he says the fucky eyes and tucking her hair behind mm-hmm. her ear or and whatever like, pursing her lips yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> really good really good stuff um okay um so yeah, uh, Fran. Uh, anything you want to plug? Where can folks find you? Find your work? Oh um, yeah, I'm over most of the time at Brightwall Dark Room, where I have most recently coverage of this year's New York Film Fest, which was awesome. A lot of big titles to come this fall discussed there. 
Um, and they're also celebrating their 100th issue. So that's very exciting. Otherwise, I'm on, I don't know, all the good social medias at, with my name, Fran Hoffner. How do we spell that? Um, that's going to be F-R-A-N-H-O-E-P-F-N-E-R. I just don't want you to miss any, you know, no, any, I, good, any good simps. That's, you know? that's <laughs> any good simps, yeah. I'm due for some new ones. You need some more reply, guys. We're trying to help you out here. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. That that's totally inappropriate. <laughs> no, it's I'm just, fine. I'm, just I'm looking kidding. for. I'm just I'm looking I think. For I think. Reese. I think Fran is probably We're sending struggling. followers our way. If anything, I'm happy. No, to. that's true. I'm happy to. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Fran. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I love, thanks for coming on. It's great. It's a generous Big time of year. Oh my god! Please, this is so fun. I love this show so much. Yay! It's back. Thanks, Fran. Uh, Thanks, as always, to Kate and Gabby. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to our producer, Dan Black. We will be back next week on the Roycast to discuss another new episode of Succession. They keep coming. Uh, Until then, everybody, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.